Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 10. Hey, uh, we're going to find out from uh, Alan, uh, Alan Morgan, where uh, his music uh, you know, began for him. Well, what happened, my parents bought me a piano, and I shaked their nerves, and I rattled their brains, and they threw the piano out. <laughs> so in turn... Uh, you were that good, huh? <laughs> yeah. We sung in the same choir. We went to the same school, Steve and I. Mm -hmm. So that's where I started singing uh, in junior high school mm -hmm. with uh, uh, the Gleek Club there. I was one of the few that could sing bass and, high and soprano almost. Right. In those days. <laughs> now, did you do any other singing? Maybe street corner singing? Uh, singing at all? No. Or were you uh, recruited when you came out of school that day? Just, uh, yeah, uh, I found out the night how I got in the group. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that was what, it. What do you remember? <laughs> <laughs> no, I just remember, you know, it, it's so far back. and you Give know, us a break. It is 35 years yeah, ago. Yeah, in fact, this is the first time I've seen And we're only 42 Steve years old. Steve in 30 years, <laughs> you know. But all the singing I done was with the Cavaliers, mm -hmm. and that was basically it. In fact, I don't even sing in the, sing in the shower anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll get you to do it now. I oh, think. okay. Just start but, the water uh, up. Would you guys ever think about, uh, I don't know, maybe ever putting we discussed that about 72 hours ago. And I've, I've discussed it with, uh, there's a fellow who works with me by the name of George Scanelli. He has a group called Breeze, and it's a six-piece band. Mm -hmm. And we're thinking of uh, getting some things back into the studio, and if I can coerce the guys into singing with me, uh, we, we probably will uh, put some stuff Richard down. Richard are you listening? And get back in it. It will be fun. Three, we have three of the five, mm -hmm. and a uh, good chance of certainly getting... Four out of the five, which is a lot better than. Have you kept track of it? Has everybody? Well, there's it's not a fellow. Steve says you haven't really kept. No, contact. no. There's a fellow by the name of Lloyd Needleman who is our uh, second tenor. Presumed dead. And we think he's dead. We can't confirm it. If you're listening, Lloyd, <coughs> uh, get a hold of CBS and call. Please come alive and join us. And then there's a fellow by the name of Junie who is our second, our replacement bass, and uh, we haven't been in touch with him. Uh, Alan has. So we know he's around. He's around someplace. That was really nice of you. So there are a lot of fellas uh, that were part of the group that you could, you conceivably put the group back together again. Right. Somebody yeah. And John Duff, who is an engineer, uh, he went out to California. Uh, and an original cavalier. An original cavalier. We don't know where he is now. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, the call is out. Next on the on the list here is. Uh, what is that, Sunday? Sunday in May. I think this was the best ballad we ever did as a group. But Sunday in May was just a love song about uh, some relationships I've had in my past. And, and this uh, is the Cavaliers again? This right? is the Cavaliers. Okay, with uh, Steve Glazer on me? Correct. All right, let's give a listen. Sunday in May. What year are we talking about? Talk about 58. Found the girl as me as a single. Now, if you've got time, you may want to... Yeah. 
on a Sunday in May, and uh, you like that the best of all the uh, things the Cavaliers did. Yeah, right? I think that was the best one. Mm -hmm. But the most successful for you was uh, dance, 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 obviously. Right. Okay, we're going to come back and hear some more in just a moment with the Cavaliers, my special guests, live tonight here in the Duop Shop. Let's talk about drive-ins and drag races. You know, I was on APT. I was on Paramount. It's a second. That's when you buy it. Then you tell them all about its performance technology. Eagles do invite a lot of questions. But the next time someone calls an Eagle Vision... I mean, they put it on a, from a demo onto a CD. I'm going to sell this tape later. You guys can buy it. <laughs> You guys really serious about starting a new group? No, 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 no. Not a new group. We're serious about getting in on one of those. And we'll take off the <laughs> The last two songs, I, two records I did were on Paramount. That's an original one you wrote, too. That's the original one I wrote. The no, first Power of Love ever. Really? Yes. First time I ever played. Well, the first power, the first song probably with this title of Power oh, of Love. Oh, I see. I see. <laughs> Okay, now the next one, uh, there was another song, Power of Love. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. What is the next one you've, uh, you've next got? Next one is about an affair that just didn't go right. It's called Loved in Vain. Mm -hmm. And uh, again, this was the flip side, I would assume. That's right. Song. All right, we're going to go out with this one. Uh, and I want to thank you gentlemen for being here. It's been a pleasure. Steve Glazer, who also performed as Scott, uh, Scott Stevens, uh, Alan Morgan, and uh, Steve Weil. Thanks for being here. Oh, thank you. Uh, really and truly. Is there... We would really love to see that uh, happen, you know, maybe the, the Cavaliers come back and do a couple we'll of shows. We'll sure let you know when we do. That would be nice, really, and get everybody up here again sometime. You got it. Okay, Love in Vain. Again, this is uh, Steve Glazer, and we're going to wrap it up right here in the doo-wop shop tonight on CBSFM. Thank you, gentlemen, for being here. Thank you.
in terms of, of movies, in every com- coming of age movie, there are you know, there's a series of, of acts and structures that happen with, with major points in those movies. And one of the things that happens in coming of age movies is there's a point of no return. A common structure is for movies to be developed into either three acts or nine acts. And in the nine act structure, there's a false goal. It's where the hero or the heroes or the heroines or the people that you're following the story of, they're headed towards something they think is their goal. And they're going to they're gonna get turned back. And then they're going to have to head on to the real goal. And that's very much what happened with the Cavalier stories. There are two moments in their story that define their destiny and, and their legacy. And the first one comes with what looks like it's going to be their biggest success. Essentially, what happens is they do end up signing with a label. And when they sign with that label, they get the opportunity to to start expanding and to start performing in a way that will give them a, a huge bit of notoriety. Shortly after the release, the song Dance, Dance, Dance started appearing on the radio. A lot, a lot, a lot. Steve remembered hearing it, playing on the Alan Freed radio show on WABC. He described it as the most amazing feeling to hear yourself and your music being played. He thought he had died and gone to heaven. It was played for three nights and then stopped playing. No one had any idea at the time why. They got updates on the Ivy Records crew as to how sales were going. The Cavaliers were told that the record was moving up the charts in New England and they should be prepared to go to Boston to promote the song. Then they got a call. They were to fly to Boston on the Pan Am shuttle from LaGuardia Airport. They were picked up in a limo and brought to the airport. This was most of the boys' first trip on an airplane. They were all a little bit terrified. And the plane was huge, a DC-6 with five stewardesses and five cavaliers as the only passengers. Everyone got their own stewardess. They were greeted at the airport by a limo driver and a chaperone who was assigned the task of getting the boys to the various appearances they would be making that day. He asked if they were hungry. They all nodded their heads in approval. He shouted some instructions to the driver, and off they went to get something to eat. The city and the population of Boston in the 1950s did not welcome rock and roll with open arms. Near riots took place at concerts and at performances of rock and roll music. It was described as the devil's work and rumored to rip the very fabric of society apart, layering onto that the racial and religious prejudices at the time, and you have a tinderbox ready to explode. So, here they are, the Cavaliers, two white Jewish kids and three black kids, walking into a diner restaurant full of white patrons. All the heads turned in their direction the moment they came in. And there was a chill in the air. They walked over to a counter, people moving out of the way as they moved forward to take their seats. But no one ever came over to take their orders. Their guide or chaperone yelled out, can we get some service here? And a waitress with red hair and a pale complexion came over. To their amazement, the diner had a television mounted from the ceiling. And suddenly, from the television, came the sounds of dance, dance, dance. Everyone spun around on their stools in a motion that seemed almost rehearsed. But there on the screen was an announcer telling the viewers that the Cavaliers, with their number one hit, Dance, 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 would be appearing on the afternoon teen music dance show. As they swiveled back, the waitress said, Is that you? Steve said, Yeah. She asked, Where are you guys from? Steve replied, New York. And then she asked, What's your name? So Steve said, Glazer. With that, she took a step back and started looking at Steve. What are you looking at? I asked. She started to blush. Steve said, are you looking for horns or something? That only comes out when there's a full moon. At that point, the chaperone and Steve decided that it was time to leave the Boston Diner. The Cavaliers discovered that outside of New York, during their short stay in other places, in spite of being on television and the radio, 
they would not be fully accepted as an integrated interracial rock and roll group. One of the things that you have to remember with this story is that I'm telling it from the perspective of the teenagers who were engaged in it. I'm actually telling it from them looking back. So it has this innocence to it. And that diner incident sounds so simple. But the truth is, it was a sign of a larger problem. And that problem was you have record label executives who are sort of new to being record label executives who have gotten in over their heads. They don't understand in the late 50s what it's like to have this integrated group. And they're not prepared to deal with it. So their solution was to minimize the problem. They wanted to keep Steve as Scott Stevens, but they weren't going to keep the Cavaliers. And this is the moment when, when that becomes apparent. And this lasts. The truth is the record industry today still has this problem. But 1958 to 1964 was sort of the peak of this issue because more and more groups became integrated after. And as they became integrated, they sort of made their way onto the charts. But that didn't stop the abuse within the record industry. But this particular time, with this particular group, it took everything that they had away from them. From NPR News, I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Audie Cornish. The March on Washington 50 years ago this summer has been credited with turning the tide of the American civil rights movement. A quarter of a million demonstrators turned out on the National Mall. Martin Luther King Jr. delivered his I Have a Dream speech, and the Civil Rights Act was passed the following year. Meantime, another, less visible revolution was taking place on transistor radios across the country. From member station WCPN, David C. Barnett brings us that story. The summer of 1963 started off with a tune by a singer who had helped forge a path into the mainstream spotlight for African-American performers a decade before. Nat King Cole sold millions of records in the 1950s and was the first African-American to host a nationally broadcast TV variety show. Lazy, Hazy, Crazy Days of Summer would turn out to be the singer's last hit song. That particular record was not uh, our cup of tea, if I can remember. Herb Kent was a disc jockey at WVON, then a new station in Chicago. It featured a totally African-American programming staff and leaned heavily on the music coming from a young, black-owned record label based nearly 300 miles to the northeast. The Motown sound was like you did the music first and then you did the vocals, so the music drove the records. Herb Kent says Motown president Barry Gordy used WVON to test the label's new records and artists. But even though the station's call letters stood for Voice of the Negro, Kent says they weren't just going for a black audience. We had a bunch of white listeners to our black station back in the day, and we would program some songs to attract them. You know, we were in the ballgame to win. I played Dion and the Belmonts from time to time. It's my party, Leslie Gore. We played that. We were just kicking butt.
It was also an interracial dance party at WHK in Cleveland. Spotlighting next, Johnny Holiday. Top jock Johnny Holiday recalls that a number of black artists were starting to appear on his station's fabulous 50 song list in 1963. We knew by playing those kind of records, people would tune into our radio station. We did check the R&B charts of the R&B stations, and if there was something that was just going completely nuts on their station, we might slip that in on our little top 50 list and see what kind of response we got. This wasn't just happening in Chicago and Cleveland, says Craig Werner, author of A Change is Gonna Come, Music, Race, and the Soul of America. The racial divide between what people were listening to diminished steadily through the late 1950s into the early 1960s. It doesn't mean that there weren't some differences remaining, but at the center of the musical hit parade, black folks and white folks were listening to very largely the same thing. Our day will come. And occasionally, a performer's racial identity got a little confusing. When Our Day Will Come first came out, a lot of people thought I was a white girl until they saw us in person. Sitting in her living room in Akron, Ohio, Ruby Garnett says her group, Ruby and the Romantics, toured a lot behind their first hit record that summer of 1963. And Craig Werner suggests that audiences were receptive to more than Garnett's silky voice. You get a song like Our Day Will Come. You get a song like One Fine Day. Even though those songs were not written with a political message in mind, they resonated with the energy of the civil rights movement, what people were feeling politically. They're looking ahead to a better future. No tears for us. Think love and wear a smile. And Ruby Garnett says you might even get a message if you look closely at the two hands clasping on the cover of her album. It's white hand and a black hand. That meant we're going to have everything and we're, you know, going to be together. In suburban Cleveland, 15-year-old Steve Golders was intrigued by something very different. Today, he's an editor for a local TV station and recalls that he and his friends were Beach Boys fans when they heard folk music coming out of the radio in the summer of 63. Peter, Paul, and Mary's very popular. We were starting to appreciate it. We were starting to like it. We were starting to learn what it said. And that's something to be said because going from Little Deuce Coop to if I had a hammer blowing in the wind, that's a leap. How many roads must a man walk down before they call him a man? How many seas must a white dove sail before she sleeps in the sand? Peter, Paul, and Mary's version of Bob Dylan's Blowing in the Wind was sitting at number two on the Billboard music charts at the end of August 1963. Peter Yarrow has vivid memories of playing it to the demonstrators at the March on Washington. It was a heady time, and when if I had a hammer, broke for a hit, and it became a top ten hit, we felt, well, music is changing. It's not shrimp boats is a coming. 
and it's my party and I'll cry if I want to. But music scholar Craig Werner says that's the point. It was Leslie Gore, the Beach Boys, and Peter, Paul, and Mary. You're hearing all of that right next to each other, and that, I think, is what makes it really wonderful. If on some basic level the civil rights movement is about freedom, it's about the freedom to be who you are, to not fit yourself into a niche. And I think you really feel that in the soundtrack of 63. There was another song about social justice starting to move up the charts as the summer of 63 came to a close. It was a Latin remake of a Peter, Paul, and Mary hit, which in turn was a remake of the original version by the Weavers a dozen years before. Trini Lopez's take on If I Had a Hammer may have been protest light, but it had a message and a good beat. You could dance to it. For NPR News, I'm David C. Barnett in Cleveland. You can hear more than 100 songs inspired by the civil rights movement at nprmusic.org. guys, they had this flexibility about them that was exactly what you need in the music industry. All the greatest artists have this ability to create their own sound and then the flexibility to sort of weather the changes in music and popular music at least. With Steve, he, he did that, but he kept getting the wind taken out of his sails. So there's the incident that happens in Boston where they started to realize that they were not going to be welcome everywhere they went. I think they had sort of expected that would be how it went in the South. But when it happened in the Northeast, that really took the wind out of their sails. And I think the record label knew it as well, because the executives that were sort of the liaisons to all of this with Ivy Records and APT, they started to look at like the future of what was going on. They recognized that Steve was the driving force behind things, and it sort of singled him out. And they started to groom him for, for solo work. So Steve starts to, to get into solo uh, work. But also, Steve and Jerry, who you've heard here, the two of them were given the opportunity to, to sign a deal with Columbia Records. They're both very talented musically. In spite of the risks in some of their personal lives, I think the fact that they took the Cavaliers away, because that's essentially what they did by asking Steve to go solo, even when they gave him Jerry to be a part of a record deal. The truth was they had taken his group away. They had taken away the satellites. They had taken away the Cavaliers. And that made it very difficult for him to know where to find his footing in the music industry. It's absolutely heartbreaking because it would have changed everything. My, my kid described it one time. It's like having a a lottery ticket where you have four or five of the numbers right, but not all of the numbers. And I, I think it's different than that. I think that it's like having a winning lottery ticket and you're on the subway and you're holding it in your hand very tightly and you open the door to get off at your stop. 
and the wind catches it and it zips into the night and you don't see where the ticket goes and you can't find that ticket again. I think that's really what was happening. So all of this to be said, the Cavaliers had appeared on television and Steve was still sort of on an upward trajectory. He basically had been told that it was going to be him and it was race related. And that's very, there's very specific descriptions of that in the movie and, and in the book. So when I got brought in to do all of this, you'll, you'll notice that there's a lot of older archival audio here. The Thanksgiving after I was brought in to work on the screenplay, uh, um, I got a, a message from my father-in-law. My father-in-law was in the same community as, as Steve and his family. I don't think they really knew how to tell me, but when they messaged me and they wanted to let me know that Steve had had a stroke. 
Thanks for joining us. This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.